The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey. Hey. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Oh, hold on, hold on a second. I'm not ready for you. I thought oh. we were going to talk about setup. No, right. there's did, no setup. That's bullshit. We don't oh. need setup. This is yeah, real. That's, that's what I said. Okay, that's what I thought. All right. One afternoon, I see a white envelope sitting in my mailbox in Brooklyn. Stamped in red letters, it says, mailed from a state correctional institution. And on the top left of the envelope, I see his name. Oh, we should journey. I had to call Kelsey right away. She was back in her home state of North Carolina after months of living between Florida and Brooklyn reporting on the Leo Schofield case with me. All right, I'm okay. gonna open it. Okay, open it. Okay, uh, it looks like it's, it's on prison paper and it's not the original thing I said. Okay, just read it, Jesus Christ. Oh my God, what is this? She says, I want you to know that Polk County gave me a call about you. I don't think you can come see me. Who knows what will happen? And that is sad when they can't see that I have kept my damn mouth shut for 31 years. Schofield case. Let's say he should be out. I thought about writing my story that no one wants to hear. I just don't really know how. Gotta go. Jay Scott. Holding the stars 
Bone Valley. Chapter 8. Dear Mr. King. I'd started writing Jeremy because, honestly, I didn't know what else to do. After working on this story for a year, the evidence I'd seen pointed more and more towards Jeremy Scott as Michelle Schofield's killer. So I sent my letters out, hoping that Jeremy might decide to open up to me, to converse in a way that he hadn't with the lawyers, investigators, and cold case detectives who read him his rights and make him swear under oath. I just want to have a conversation with him. To hear the story, he says, that no one wants to hear. But we need to back up for a minute to September of 2019, about 10 months before I got Jeremy's letter. So we're here at the Tampa Law Center in uh, Tampa, Florida. We're here for the uh, second DCA oral arguments. After studying every detail of Leo's case over the past year, this is the first legal proceeding we get to see for ourselves. The deciding factor, but this moment, this particular appeal, is everything for Leo. Um, this, this could really kill all his chances of, of going forward at this moment. And I think this is almost like his last chance. The reason we're here is because the judge in the last hearing denied Leo a new trial even after watching Jeremy Scott confess to killing Michelle Schofield in court. So in spite of the forensic evidence linking Jeremy Scott to the crime scene, and despite the fact that there is still no physical evidence and no direct evidence tying Leo Schofield to the murder of his wife, a single judge ruled that Jeremy Scott was not credible and his confession to killing Michelle was not believable. But Leo's lawyers appealed the judge's decision and won. So now, almost two years after Jeremy Scott confessed on the stand, Leo is given another chance to make his case in court, to argue that he deserves a new trial. This hearing will be before a panel of three judges seated on the 2nd District Court of Appeal. It's about to start when we see Leo's wife Chrissy and their daughter Ashley walk through the door. Yeah, you know when you're like... Trying to get somewhere on time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't you need that added stress, but you made it. And you, everything's you. fine. They're, they're just starting to see people, so you guys are in great shape. How are you? How am I today? Um, hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know if I have a word for it, actually. Just um, hopeful. Hopeful. Yeah, that's probably the best word. At Leo's last hearing... Chrissy witnessed how Jeremy Scott withstood the prosecutor's verbal abuse. How, by the end of his testimony, Jeremy maintained that it was he alone who killed Michelle Schofield back in February of 1987. Some of his last words in court that day were, I killed her. It's, it's maddening that we are still here all these years later. And I was thinking about, it's been two years since I got the call about the confession. Two years, he described in detail what he did, how he did it, what he was thinking when he did it, what Michelle was saying when he killed her. Two years later, and we're still talking about this. If these three judges don't grant Leo a new trial, 
it will become even harder for him to successfully appeal to a higher court and get another opportunity to prove his innocence. Leo isn't allowed here to watch the hearing, and he won't find out how it went until he calls Chrissy later in the day. How are Leo's spirits lately? Um, he's hopeful, but he's also afraid. He's afraid that we'll get more of the same. He's afraid that he'll disappoint his family. Um, when I think about that is when I get choked up. Because he doesn't disappoint us. But, so that's where he is. So, that's that. I think we should go in. The room is more like a lecture hall than a courtroom. But there's a tenseness in the air. More than a dozen people have come in support of Leo. They are all aware that this may be Leo's last chance for justice. Your Honor, my name is uh, Seth Miller from the Innocence Project Florida. Uh, my co-counsel, Ms. Dolan, who will not be arguing today. And with First, Leo's attorney, Seth Miller from the Innocence Project of Florida, gets up and begins his oral argument about the new evidence of Jeremy Scott's confession to killing Michelle. He only has 20 minutes to present his case, but the judges can interrupt at any point to ask questions. We have additional facts. Seth brings up how there are certain details Jeremy knows that only the murderer could know, how Jeremy's story is consistent with the forensic evidence, and how Michelle was found in the same spot that Jeremy used to take his girlfriend, Jamie Nellums. But just a minute into his argument, the judges are already interrupting with questions. And before long, they veer away from Jeremy Scott's confession and instead dredge up the same so-called evidence from the original trial. Like Leo's father's weird behavior. His ex-girlfriend, Jamie Nellums, testified that um, he used to bring her to. But then a few mornings after uh, the incident, the, the, the defendant's father had a premonition that that's where the body was and led police to that location. Isn't that something that's what really bothers me listening to the judge's questions, is that Leo Sr.'s story about a vision from God continues to be treated as a fact in this case. As if he woke up that morning with a premonition and then led police to some random ditch in Polk County where Michelle's body just happened to be. That's not what happened. Leo Sr. had been searching for Michelle for nearly three days and nights. He didn't lead police to the body. He found her body then flagged down a passing trucker who alerted the police. And it wasn't until after the police showed up that he claimed to have had this clairvoyant vision from God. It was a story told by a distraught and troubled man. And so, with only 20 precious minutes to argue his case, Seth gets stuck explaining Leo's father's premonition, instead of arguing to the judges why Jeremy Scott's confessions deserve to be considered by a new jury at a new trial. And that's all Leo and his lawyers are asking for. They're not asking for Leo to walk out of prison today. They're just asking for a new jury to decide his fate. After Seth takes a seat, the attorney for the state makes his argument. And it's basically this. Jeremy Scott is not credible, and nothing he says should be believed. But... There is one time, the state says, that you can believe Jeremy when he says he didn't kill Michelle. 
determine his version of events, which was deemed credible by this court in 2010, that he stole the stereo equipment and found the abandoned car and did not kill Michelle Schofield, matches much more logically with the evidence known in the case than his version of events. This is the preposterous position the state is forced to defend, that a man who has confessed to three different murders in Polk County that he is forensically linked to is suddenly nothing more than a car stereo thief. It's like they're refusing to acknowledge the fact that the state attorney's office has already prosecuted Jeremy Scott twice for murder. If this court does not have any further questions, I would ask that you affirm the trial court's denial of the motion for newly discovered evidence. Thank you very much. The hearing doesn't last long, about 30 minutes and then it's over. We all walk out into the lobby and don't know how to feel. It's hard to read what the judges are thinking, and Leo's family wants to remain optimistic. But now, the waiting begins. For the next eight months, we will all wake up in the morning and refresh the second DCA's website to see if their decision has been posted online, to see if the court has ruled that Leo should be granted a new trial. Hi, I'm Jason Flom, CEO and founder of Lava for Good Podcasts, home to Bone Valley, Wrongful Conviction, The War on Drugs, and many other great podcasts. Today, we're asking you, our listeners, to take part in a survey. Your feedback is going to help inform how we make podcasts in the future. Your complete and candid answers will help us continue to bring you more insightful and inspiring stories about important topics that impact us all. So please, go to lavaforgood.com survey and participate today. Thank you for your support. Bone Valley is sponsored by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's boldest change makers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems, including the failed war on drugs that has criminalized addiction, fueled over-incarceration, and shattered communities. At 11 years old, Scott Strode drank his first beer. At 15, Scott went to a mental health facility because of suicidal thoughts where he tried cocaine. Like many others who experience addiction, Scott was using drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. He was trying to numb childhood trauma. In his early 20s, Scott was invited into a boxing gym by a friend. That's where he discovered the healing power of sport and community that helped propel him towards sobriety. In 2006, Scott founded The Phoenix, a free, sober, active community that uses the transformative power of sport to help people treat and heal from addiction and imagine new possibilities for their lives through fitness. The program restores compassion to a system that has long relied on locking people up to solve the addiction crisis. Scott Strode is one of many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to drive solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and criminal justice. To learn more about addiction and the war on drugs, listen to the War on Drugs podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While Leo and his family wait for the judges to release their decision about whether or not Leo will be granted a new trial, 
Leo has one other chance for freedom. Not through a new trial that will allow him to clear his name, but through parole. Parole is basically the state's way of saying, you committed a crime, served your sentence, and kept out of trouble in prison. So as long as you keep checking in with us now and again, we no longer think you're a present danger to society. But parole is not ideal for Leo, because even if it's granted, he'll still be a convicted murderer in the eyes of the state. On the other hand, if he's paroled, he'd at least eventually be home with his family. In a lot of ways, Leo is the perfect candidate for parole. He's a model inmate who's obtained multiple college degrees and leads the prison ministry program, God Behind Bars. I've graduated college. I've, I've gotten awards from the Toastmasters. I can't do anything else. There's nothing else to do here. I've, I've been the pastor of the Messianic community here since 2011. I invented programs to graduate from. And Leo hasn't had a single disciplinary infraction in 14 years. In fact, over his 30 years in prison, he's been written up just five times and only for minor infractions. Like once, he missed a day of work because of an injury. And another time, he handed out one of Chrissy's Mary Kay Cosmetics cards to a corrections officer he was friendly with. In addition to presenting their prison records, inmates are expected to show that they'd be a benefit to society and that they'd have stable housing and jobs. Leo has all of that lined up. He has dozens of letters of support from friends and family and even corrections officers who have known him for years. Leo even has a letter of support from Michelle's brother, Jesse Somm. Chrissy got in touch with him after the fingerprints in Michelle's car were matched to Jeremy Scott. And Chrissy started sending Jesse documents. So I read through it and I was like, dang, man, this stuff's it's pretty substantial. Fingerprints was a big deal. Jeremy's history was a big deal. Uh, the fact that he had murdered other people and that he was around that same area frequently was a big deal, and, um, and a lot of that stuff just started adding up. Do you believe that um, Jeremy Scott killed your sister? I think so. I think he did. Yeah. And I think that Leo's been wrongfully in prison this whole time. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it bothers me. It makes me sad, you know, that they won't try to pursue the evidence that's boiled up after all these years and at least process it, you know? And then we'll all know, you know, if he did or not. I mean, dude, we're all just searching for the answer, you know? So why wouldn't we pursue it? Yeah, the the parole hearing, it started pretty early in the morning. Got there, saw... Chrissy and Ashley and, you know, the whole gang. It's January 8th, 2020, about four months after the second DCA hearing that would determine whether or not Leo will get a new trial. But there's still no decision in time for Leo's parole hearing. I had something scheduled that day, so Kelsey made arrangements to fly down to Tallahassee to cover the hearing herself. And I knew Kelsey was kind of nervous about this trip. Texted Gilbert, I said, don't see Hill yet. Jerry Hill was John Aguero's boss at the time of Leo's trial back in 1989. 
He's a tough-talking law and order prosecutor who ran unopposed in his last seven elections. Parole is different from Leo's other hearings because a representative from the state doesn't have to be there. But Jerry Hill and his office have made a point of showing up to these hearings. Even though he retired in early 2017, after serving 32 years as state attorney, he still drives hours to attend these parole hearings. And he's taken a special interest in Leo's case. We tried emailing Jerry Hill, but we received no response. We had a lot of questions, and since nobody from the state attorney's office would agree to be interviewed, we knew our only chance to talk to Jerry Hill might be after the hearing. And with me unable to attend, Kelsey was going to have to be the one to try to corner him. Seth Miller from the Innocence Project makes the case for Leo's parole. He has just 10 minutes, and he has to share that time with Leo's family members and people who Leo mentored in the prison, all of whom have shown up to speak on his behalf. He's a leader, a mentor. He encouraged me to participate in programs, and here I am today. With so many speakers and so little time, even Chrissy and Ashley are given less than a minute to explain to the commissioners who they are and why they want Leo home. Uh, good morning. Um, my name's Chrissy Schofield. Um, I've been in prison with Leo for about 28 years now. And one thing that I do know about the Department of Corrections is it's not designed to build better men, um, but there are a few that do rise, and Leo's one of those guys. Hi, my name is Ashley. Um, all I have to say is I will take advantage of every opportunity, every family outing, everything that they teach us, I will take in just so when my dad gets home, we can have the best life that we possibly can. That's all I have to say. The 10 minutes are up. Everyone who speaks on Leo's behalf takes a seat. Then it's the other side's turn. I think I looked to my right. I glanced up and um, I saw Jerry Hill walking down the aisle, approaching the podium. So I immediately like stopped breathing for a minute, was just like kind of in shock, like, oh my God, he's here. Morning, commissioners. Jerry Hill on behalf of Brian Haas, state attorney for the 10th Circuit. Texted Gilbert again, JK, Hill is here. Gilbert says, okay, stay cool. You got this. The next 10 minutes of the hearing is supposed to be allotted to any of the victim's loved ones who want to speak or have a letter read. They usually ask the parole board not to release the convicted person that's up for parole. But Jesse, Michelle's brother, had written a different kind of letter to the state, and he asked for it to be read at the hearing. He wrote, I do not have confidence in the conviction of Leo Schofield and I support his request for parole. But Jesse Psalm's letter is never presented. Instead, the retired state attorney, Jerry Hill, uses the time to argue that Leo Schofield should never get out of prison. And he starts talking about the facts of the case. The defendant's car and his wife's car was abandoned on I-4. It was discovered by the father and Leo before law enforcement could find it. By this point, I was getting used to the state twisting the facts and injecting bad evidence into every proceeding. But then, Jerry Hill takes it to another level. 
Instead of the usual mention of Leo's father's vision from God, Jerry Hill gets it wrong in a major way. Leo said he was driven by an inner force to go back to the pit area again. Leo said he felt drawn to that area and felt that Michelle was calling out to him. He makes it sound like it was Leo himself who had the premonition. Leo said uh, he began to search. The closer he got to Michelle, the worse his head hurt. It's not the job of the three parole commissioners to know all the facts of Leo's case. In fact, the point of the hearing isn't supposed to be about the facts of the case at all. Most of the people who are hoping to be granted parole have admitted their guilt in the crimes they've been convicted of. The point of parole is to evaluate how they've conducted themselves in prison, to see if the inmate can be safely released back into society after having served their minimum sentence. But listening to Jerry Hill, these commissioners probably thought it was suspicious that the guy who was convicted of killing his 18-year-old wife also claimed that a vision from God led him to discover her body. But of course, none of that ever happened. It wasn't Leo, but his father who had this supposed vision from God. Maybe it was just an honest mistake by a retired state attorney who is no longer familiar with the facts of the case from back in the 1980s. But these kind of misrepresentations happen over and over at every stage of Leo's case, from his trial, through all his appeals, and now parole. The state attorneys, the judges, they just keep getting the facts wrong. And it's hard to know if it's just carelessness or if the state is intentionally misleading in order to keep Leo locked behind bars. Either way, someone's freedom, someone's life is on the line. And Jerry Hill isn't done with his argument yet. I listened to that presentation and how this individual has taken advantage of a lot of opportunities. But folks, I got to point out an absolute glaring hole in that presentation. I didn't hear one word about regret, sorrow, wish I hadn't done it. I was a different person then. This guy is an unrepentant, jury convicted, first degree murderer, proven beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. There's no remorse, there's no sorrow, How do you put a man in a program, getting him ready to be released into society, when he can't say, I'm sorry? When he can't say, I did it? I know this is a subsequent, and I'm sorry I'm so emotional about it. I just feel very strongly that this is a cold, calculating, first-degree murderer. He's a manipulator, and he's exactly where he ought to be. After Jerry Hill speaks, the commissioners announce their decision. Right then and there, Leo is denied parole. The commission makes it very clear that parole is not a right, but, quote, an act of grace of the state. There will be no act of grace for Leo Schofield. You can't really react to the ruling in the room. So we all were kind of 
devastated, but trying to hide it a little bit until we got out into the lobby. And then we all stepped outside. And I glanced over and I saw Jerry Hill walking out. And I knew, I knew that that was my opportunity. It's just like, can't hesitate. I just like turned on my heel and called out. Mr. Hill? Yes, ma'am. I'm working on a story with Gilbert King about the Leo Schofield case. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a couple questions? Well, let's see. Go ahead. This case was originally handled by John Aguero. That's correct. Um, what do you think when you take on a case of his from so long ago? I think John was a brilliant prosecutor and that he was spot on. He could probably tell how nervous I was. My hands might have been shaking a little bit. I, I wish it hadn't been so obvious that I was nervous. But to some degree, I think maybe that worked in my favor. I think maybe it disarmed him a little bit. And I was able to kind of gain my confidence back when I realized how little he knows about this case. And what did you think when you first learned that the fingerprints in Michelle Schofield's car were um, identified to Jeremy Scott? I thought Jeremy Scott was a thief. Your office prosecuted him twice for murder, didn't it? Since then, not before then, not at that time. Subsequent, long subsequent. The Jewel Johnson murder was in 1885. That was after, I believe. No, that was before. <laughs> Michelle's murder was in 87. Okay, uh, you may be right. It doesn't all... Did you read, did you hear the transcript? Did I've you see the it. judge's findings? I've read it all. He's a liar. He offered to sell his testimony for $1,000. Yeah. Uh, that's hardly a basis for suggesting that he's the actual murderer. Couldn't he be a stereo thief and the actual murderer? Now, that's a theoretical question. And I guess in theory, the answer is, of course, he could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, shouldn't it be your responsibility to investigate? Now, that? wait a minute. We have investigated this thing upside down. Leo Schofield is a cold-blooded murderer, and if I have my way, he'll never get out of prison. Uh, right now, Leo's case is being reviewed by the second DCA. If they were to reverse the lower court's opinion, would you uh, try him again? Well, let me tell you, I'm not too worried about that. We're not going to have to try him again. You wouldn't do that? Oh, we'll try him again if he were to get off. Let me, let me tell you right now. He's a killer. And uh, unless you want to take him home, will you? Then he's where he ought to be. Thank you very much, mm -hmm. Mr. Hill. Yes, ma'am. Have a good day. All of the stuff that I've read before, that I'd read in transcripts, just how the state talks about Leo in his case, I think maybe I'd kind of been telling myself, like, oh, it, you know, they can't be that bad, right? Like... I see the words on the page, but it, it just can't be that bad. <sighs> then listening to Jerry Hill, it's just like, oh gosh, no, it, it really is that bad. It's really worse. Now I think Jerry Hill, he had an opportunity to be the hero, and they can still be the hero. I don't want money, I don't want fame, I don't want any of this stuff. I just want justice for my dead wife, that's what I want. Give that to me, and I'll put my arm over your shoulder and say, you're the hero, you're the friggin' hero. Just do what's right. Do what's right. Because you're never gonna give me justice. Never. You can't give me back 34 years. You can't give Michelle back her life. But the least you can do 
when you say that you care about her, is do the right thing by her. Because this is not it. This is definitely not it. After Leo learns he's been denied parole, he sends Chrissy an email to the prison system's computers. As usual, it's Leo who is trying to buoy everyone's spirits. Leo writes, I'm so sorry you have to deal with this. I was so hopeful that it was going to be different this time. I'm just sorry. I love you. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. A few months after Leo was denied parole, I go to my computer, and there it is. The second DCA's decision. Leo is also denied a new trial. His chances of proving his innocence and getting out of prison 
and having a normal life with his family, they're pretty much gone. I text Chrissy. I text Judge Scott Cup. I struggle to imagine what this will do to Leo. All he can do now is wait for yet another parole hearing, where, yet again, the state will argue that he's not worthy of freedom because he isn't sorry for killing Michelle. And Leo will refuse to express remorse because he's always maintained his innocence. The timing of the second DCA's decision not to grant Leo a new trial, it couldn't be worse. COVID is in full swing, and Chrissy and Ashley are not allowed any in-person visits with Leo. Also during this time, Leo's mom passes away, and Leo witnesses an inmate get stabbed to death. I mean, it really is shocking to me that we could get this far and not get any relief at all. You know, and then the, the, the reality settling in that the, the nightmare scenario that I could die in here, you know, and, and <laughs> that's just too heavy for me, Kelsey. I, that's going to be the straw that breaks my back. I can't do that. I just, I, I'm not going to give him another 30. I don't want to. I, don't, I would feel totally wrong to allow that. I would rather end it myself. That's the gospel truth. I'm not going to let my wife, my daughter, suffer through this crap anymore. I'm not. I'm just not going to do it. So we're not going to anticipate it going that way. I'm believing. I'm willing to take anything that allows me to go home and take care of my wife and daughter short of admitting to something I didn't do. As Leo struggles to keep hope... I think about all the work Kelsey and I have put into this case. Nobody around Leo will ever say it, but we can feel it. They're putting all their hopes in our investigation, our story about Leo's case. And because I'm also very aware of the mountains that must be moved in order to overturn a wrongful conviction, I always make sure to temper any expectations. Telling Leo's story, no matter how truthfully and persuasively, is simply not a realistic path toward gaining his freedom. But there's no denying it. Our investigation, our story, might just be Leo's last hope, his last chance to convince people that he was wrongly convicted of murdering his wife and that Jeremy Scott is Michelle's true murderer. We've seen how the state of Florida's false narrative has defined Leo's case, and at the very least, We want to correct this narrative. Kelsey and I are thinking about where to look next, and there's one stone we've left unturned. We start thinking more and more about Jeremy Scott. Maybe he has more to say. We have to try to talk to him. So I write a letter to Jeremy and mail it off to him. And when I don't hear from him, I write another. I tell him that I'm an author and that I've been investigating the Leo Schofield case, and that I'm interested in his dealings with the state attorney's office. I send him a self-addressed stamped envelope and some extra paper so he can write me back. I know he's been contacted by journalists in the past, and that he doesn't respond, so my hopes are pretty low. But there's not much else I can do. It's the spring of 2020, and COVID is stopping us from traveling down to Florida. Sitting in my office in Brooklyn... 
I feel powerless. But the one thing I can do is write to Jeremy. So I keep at it, just hoping he'll change his mind and write back. Holy shit, it's Jeremy. And seven months later, I see that first letter sitting in my mailbox. She says, I want you to know that Polk County gave me a call about you. I don't think you can come see me. Who knows what will happen? And that is sad when I have kept my damn mouth shut for 31 years. Schofield case. Let's say he should be out. I thought about writing my story that no one wants to hear. I just don't really know how. Gotta go. Jay Scott. Oh. Okay. I think he's open to us visiting him. He got a call? It sounds like Polk County, like, made him believe that he's not allowed to talk to us, which they can't do. No, they can't. And that's why we're going to figure out what they did. We file a record request to find out who might have called him, but we're informed by the Florida Department of Corrections that they can't release those records. So I write Jeremy another letter. I want to see if he'd agree to a visit from us. I want him to know that I'm eager to hear his story, that I'm interested in anything and everything he has to say. I also send him a pre-written consent letter. If he signs, it will allow me to visit and record an interview with him. It's not long before he sends the form back to me, signed but the prisons in Florida are still locked down due to COVID. And then, once the Department of Corrections lifts the COVID restrictions about six weeks later, we find out that Jeremy has been placed in disciplinary confinement, so we can't visit him until he returns to general population. And who knows when that will be. As the months pass, we're constantly checking his status. There's no change and he stops writing. Still, we wanted to find a way to get someone to look into Jeremy Scott. We felt we had some pretty compelling evidence linking Jeremy to the murder of cab driver Joseph LeVere back in 1987. It didn't feel right just sitting on what we'd collected. So I reached out to one of my contacts at the state attorney's office in the Ninth Circuit. That's the office that handles all the cases in Osceola County including the murder of Joseph LeVere. It seemed like there had to be fingerprints and potential sources of DNA from the taxi that could be tested. And if it turns out that Jeremy is forensically linked to a fourth murder, the murder of Joseph LeVere, the state's narrative that Jeremy is just a car stereo thief who had nothing to do with the murder of Michelle Schofield would look even more preposterous. But we're in a weird position. We'd collected so much information about what the state attorney's office in Polk County had done wrong in failing to properly investigate Jeremy Scott. And now we were thinking about going to a neighboring county state attorney's office, pointing out yet another failed investigation. We don't know how they're going to react, but we decide it's what we have to do. We managed to get a meeting lined up with the state attorney's office in the Ninth Circuit, and we presented our case over a Zoom call. Okay, um, excellent. So I'm, I'm just going to talk to you a little bit and, and about why I'm doing this and what, what I've learned and why I'm really getting in touch with you. But um, I go through the whole thing, how while working on Leo's story, we came across the LaVare case. We tell them that Jeremy's girlfriend, Jamie, said that Jeremy made a spontaneous confession decades ago 
to getting away with killing a taxicab driver, and how we think we've linked that spontaneous confession to the murder of Joseph LeVere, an Osceola County homicide that's still unsolved. It had been over three decades since this office handled the case and filed charges against Dan Odie, the man who was tried twice and eventually acquitted. The folks we're talking to weren't there at the time, so we tell them a bit about Dan Odie and some of the accusations of police corruption that were exposed in court during his case. I know it was a lot to sort of absorb, and like I said, I'll hand over any documents, recordings, anything you think that might be helpful to you. They seem to understand how this investigation relates back to Leo's case. I just wonder if Polk County wouldn't be um, kind of pressured a little bit to look at Jeremy and Scott if they know that we're looking at him for a cold case in, in Osceola. I think it's worth a shot. Absolutely. We tell them that we're hoping to meet with Jeremy. We're just waiting for him to get out of disciplinary confinement. You have every right as a citizen to engage other citizens who include people who are in custody. But um, I think if, if law enforcement's going to try to work this case, I would think they would want to be part of, of that conversation if you're willing to extend that to the agency. They're basically saying that they can't stop us from meeting with Jeremy, but they'd rather we don't. It could interfere with an investigation. In other words, let the cops do their job. I'm happy to step back and see what comes of their work. It could mean justice in a decades-old cold case, and it could also bring renewed attention to Leo's case. I just sort of want to see this move forward because I, I, I feel very strongly that um, Jeremy Scott is, is the suspect. We're hopeful that someone is finally going to investigate Jeremy Scott. Yeah, it was nice to meet you, Shanna. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. I'll be in touch. I'll send my PowerPoint and I'll send uh, documents and recordings. A few weeks later, we get a second letter from Jeremy. It's been seven months since the first one. I call Kelsey right away. She was sitting in a parking lot in Durham, North Carolina, trying to get the internet set up in her new apartment. So I record the call on my end. Or, I think I do. Okay, so I completely fucked that up and, and forgot to press record. That's what happens when you're not here. Uh, I have to do shit on my own, and it doesn't work out as well as when you're here, so there we go. Yes, no, it doesn't happen to you, but it happens to me. Okay, so here it is. Okay, this letter is dated March 6th, 2021, and It's from Jeremy, and he says, Dear Mr. King, I don't know what it is that you want to know about Polk County prosecutors. They lied, told me what they were going to help me, but that never happened. That's why I told the whole truth about Leo Schofield. And I had also told them things that a killer would know Leo didn't kill his wife. I did. That taxi cab driver that was shot by a three fifty seven gun. They didn't want to hear what I had to say. That taxi cab driver? This is stunning to me. I never mentioned the cab driver in my letters. I was very intentional about that. I didn't want to confront him about the murder of Joseph LeVere because I was worried Jeremy might shut down and I'd lose the opportunity to sit with him in person. 
But now we have this letter from him, and he's bringing up the cab driver murder, completely unprompted. Jeremy goes on to write about his release from prison in 1986. That was after his acquittal in the Jewel Johnson murder, and after he served a few months on the arson charge. Following his release, he stays with his mother in Perry, Florida, until January. Then, with an uncle in Osceola County, just over the Polk County line. I keep reading. Anyway, while I was staying there, I took money and a big knife. Not just any kind. That was the one used on Michelle. I took off in February 1987, went to Lakeland, Florida. I stole the gun after Michelle was killed, maybe a week or two. I can tell you the gun belonged to a cop. I saw a picture in the house, which is Winter Haven. Leo Schofield and myself had the same prosecutor, the same now he ain't anywhere to be found. He lied to me. So I know there's people who have wanted to do story. I can't get money for this. But if you or any of them are willing to send me paper, stamps, I'm on CM2 right now. CM2 is the second level of close management. It's basically solitary confinement. That's why we haven't been able to visit him yet. Turns out, Jeremy ended up there because corrections officers found a makeshift weapon in his shoe. They said they found a knife on me. I got to live that way. I am a walking dead man. I've been running for the last 20 years. I never stay in one place too long. They almost got me once. If you don't want the whole truth about Leo and cab driver, I will sail say my whole story to whoever will pay in stamps. I ain't asking for money, just a few books of stamps, or Leo will never be free. I will be waiting. I think it's time for to talk about it. I am safe in CM. I'll wait to hear from you. Jeremy Scott. He confessed to killing that cab driver. We didn't know what to expect from Jeremy, but in this letter, he just confessed to two murders. We weren't surprised by his confession to killing Michelle Schofield because he'd confessed before. But this cab driver murder confession is shocking to read, and it's hard to wrap my head around why Jeremy brings this up. It's almost like he knows it's something that will eventually catch up with him. And he mentions the gun, which had always been a lingering question in my mind. The details he provides might even be information we can corroborate. Like, was there a gun reported stolen from a house in Winterhaven around that time? If I can keep Jeremy corresponding with me, who knows what other details he might bring up. His writing is a little disjointed, but not too difficult to read. More importantly, it seems like he has a lot more to say, and he seems willing to say it. And so... After we get this letter, we decide we need to turn over a copy to our contacts at the state attorney's office in the Ninth Circuit. This letter seemed to validate everything we've just presented to them. This letter could even qualify as new evidence in the 34-year-old unsolved homicide of cab driver Joseph LeVere. 
We were hoping they'd move fast and compare the physical evidence recovered from the taxi to Jeremy. Fingerprints, DNA, any of it might have given us some answers. But a few weeks pass, and then a few more, and we hear nothing. It seems that the state attorney's office isn't doing anything else to look into Jeremy Scott. So we spend the next few weeks agonizing about whether to stay in contact with Jeremy. Kelsey and I talk it over, and after waiting and waiting for some news or an update from the state, we decide, fuck it, I'm writing back to Jeremy Scott. I don't care if the state attorney doesn't want us talking to him. This time, I ask more specific questions. But still, I avoid asking any direct questions about the cab driver murder. I'm trying to walk the line and not do anything to compromise the state's investigation, if there even is one. So I asked Jeremy about Michelle Schofield and the prosecutor, John Aguero. And I send Jeremy some postage stamps. We discuss this too. Stamps are a sort of currency in the prison system and we don't want Jeremy to think we're compensating him in exchange for his correspondence. On the other hand, he's basically in lockdown in close management with time on his hands. And if he's bored and he finally wants to tell his story, I want to hear from him. Then, finally, we get an update from the state attorney's office. They tell us that they want us to take our evidence to the Osceola County Sheriff's Office the agency that originally handled the Joseph LeVere murder. So once again, we compile all the evidence we have, and on June 22, 2021, we show up in Kissimmee to do our presentation. We are heading to the Osceola County Sheriff's Office for our big meeting. And so we've been trying to get this meeting for months. Just a few hours before our meeting, they email me saying they don't want us to record. How are you feeling about this? I think... I mean, I feel, I feel pretty good that they're going to have to do something about this. I don't think they can just blow us off, but I don't know. Yeah. What kind of worries me is I, this is a dirty case, and they, they have to know it. If they look into it a little bit, they have to see it. All right. Well, it's about time to go in, right? All right, let's do it. Okay, gonna turn this off. We'll debrief after. We're brought inside to a conference room. About a half dozen people are there, and I set up my PowerPoint to display on a big screen. I have police reports with witness descriptions and a sketch of the alleged suspect in the Joseph LeVere murder. A thin man around 5 foot 10 much closer to Jeremy's appearance than six foot four, 235-pound Dan Odie, who was tried twice for the murder. I also present records that show that fingerprints were lifted from the car, and I show them a photograph of a baseball cap that was found in the back seat of the cab, which police believe the suspect left behind. It's the same evidence I'm hoping they'll dig up from some storage locker and start analyzing and I have tape of Jeremy's brother, Royal Dean Scott, saying he remembers talking to Jeremy about the cab driver and how Jeremy left Osceola County shortly after the incident. I'd heard about the cab driver uh, being robbed 
and I remember him saying something about it, and then he had to leave for a little while. Then I have Jeremy's letter mentioning how he got the gun and how he has more to say about that killing. I stole the gun after Michelle was killed, maybe a week or two. I can tell you the gun belonged to a cop. I think it's time for to talk about it. I'll wait to hear from you, Jeremy Scott. It seems like the main person we're trying to convince in this meeting is Major Wiley Black. He's the head of criminal investigations. To get to that position, Major Black has put in a lot of years with the sheriff's office. This gives us pause, because this case has a lot to do with possible corruption within this sheriff's office. It's likely that Major Black both knew and worked with Deputy Buddy Shepard. That was the detective accused of threatening to take the children away from young mothers in Intercession City unless they testified against Dan Odie. We try our best to brush past the Buddy Shepard accusations. We don't want them focusing on that now. We want them to be compelled to act because of the evidence we present and the opportunity to close a 34-year-old unsolved murder. So we show them what we have. They make photocopies of Jeremy's letters, we answer a few questions, and then it's over. Kelsey tells me to stay quiet until she can get the microphone out. How do you think that went? I don't think it went very well at all. What do you think? Really? Yeah. Why do you say that? I I think they were engaged, they were listening, but I think the homicide detective, Wiley Black, I think he, to me, I felt like he was signaling that this case is going nowhere. Did you get that? I don't know. I I thought he, I mean, he said he was going to look into the evidence. I think he was being realistic that it very likely could not exist at this point. But the fingerprints we know exist. I mean, they have copies of those prints, and those can be at least be run. As we're getting ready to leave the parking lot at the sheriff's office, it begins to rain, like it does almost every summer afternoon in central Florida. The darkening sky matches our mood. I just got the feeling that this is going to die right here. This is a little frustrating because you can see the black hole sort of develop. Um, I'm not. I'm not encouraged at all by this. So we just have to like strategize about how to next steps and when do we start doing our own investigation. I mean, they didn't tell us to not go and talk to Jeremy. So yeah, there's that. I think that's what we have to do now. I just. I just. I don't know, but it's freaking hot in this car so I'm you got any of this is too much well it's gotta be do you have any final thoughts yeah i want to keep investigating this and i want to talk to some of these witnesses that i've been steering clear of and i want to start asking jeremy in letters about that taxi cab driver there could be something there i don't want to stop on this jeremy thing now i just feel like what are we going to do Well, at least we got some free coffee out of that, right? Yeah, free coffee. Nice ride through Intercession City. All right. 
We follow up with Major Wiley Black, who was sitting in the room with us, but our emails go unanswered. Weeks go by, and there doesn't seem to be any forward movement on the case. I get the sense that the Osceola County Sheriff's Office doesn't want this case reopened. Hey, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Are you you recording? Yes, recording now. We get another letter from Jeremy. All right. right. I'm opening. This one feels. This one feels a little thicker. I don't know why. Oh Lord. Okay. Okay. Here we go. This was sent on May sixteenth, twenty twenty-one. Dear Mr. King. I received your letter along with 10 stamps. First, let me tell you why I asked for stamps. It's the only way I can buy soap and food back here on CM. I don't have anyone to help me. I just want you to understand why I asked for stamps. I really don't have shit to do. I read when I can, find books. I don't get any mail, not unless it's from you. Now about some of the things that you asked me about. Yes, John Aguero did prosecute both me and Leo. And yes, Mr. John Aguero did lie to me. They took me to see Mr. Aguero's office, and he told me that Leo lawyer wants to talk with me. Jeremy starts writing about that meeting he had with Aguero, alone in his office, after the fingerprints in the Mazda were identified. It sounds like Aguero was telling Jeremy that Leo and his father were bad guys who not only killed Michelle, but may have killed other girls too, and that Aguero needed Jeremy's help to keep Leo locked up. I think this is why Jeremy says things like, I don't know what else Leo has done, but in this one, he's innocent. He went on talking about how he will be sitting on my parole, how he can write on my behalf, All I had to do is keep on saying how my fingerprint was in the car at the time. I really thought he was going to help me. I have heard a state attorney has helped inmates before, and plus my grandma was still alive. But you were right. It was just me and John Aguero. Jeremy seems to be saying that Aguero was trying to cut a deal with him. Aguero would help Jeremy with his parole if Jeremy stuck to the story about how his prints ended up in Michelle's car. And after seeing how much sway the state attorney had over Leo's case, it makes sense why Jeremy might buy into this. It might have been Jeremy's only chance at being released from prison and spending any time on the outside with his grandmother. Jeremy goes on to mention a visit from some guy Leo's attorney sent to speak to him. Sounds like private investigator Pat McKenna. First, I wouldn't talk to him because everyone been lying to me. Then I heard that John Aguero died. So all these years later, I told myself that I will tell everything, and I did, but nobody believed me. I don't know what else I can do. I was telling the truth, nothing but the truth, 
And then he writes, I'm going to give you something, okay? I'm going to give you something. Now, Jeremy really has my attention. He sets up the night of Michelle's murder. It was raining most of the night. I just off I-4 went down North Cumbie, where I used to live. Once I got off Cumbie Road and head to Lakeland, I stop at a gas station. I can't remember the name. I knew it was raining. I was sick and cold, wet. There was a woman on the phone, talking. She thought I was waiting on the phone. When she got off, she asked me if I was lost. I told her yes, and hadn't any way to get back to the place I was staying. She had a little car. She was nice, and offered me a ride. So we went back down Cumbie Road, going out by I-4 underpath. I told her she could pull in there. There's little trees, a little road with a creek in it. I know it well. So she pull in. Then she said, There's no one here. I pull the knife out. She went crazy, tried to push the gas. But I threw the car in park. When I first read this letter to Kelsey, this detail hit hard. Michelle tried to put the the car in drive. Oh, that fucking like makes me sick to my stomach. You know, um, you might have fucked up the car that like that. That's the reason it wasn't working. You fucked it up by doing that. Could have been, yeah, could have been. She tried to open the car door. That's when I lost it. I didn't remember how many times I stab. I get out the car, went over where she was laying, out the car door. She had opened it. I look at her not knowing what I just did. I was just pulling the knife so I could rob her. I went look around for something to hide her. I found something looked like a big bag. I lay it out. Then I put her on the bag and rolling her up in it. Then took her down by the creek. I found a place where I could push her in, then cover her with wood trash. I don't understand why there was no blood in the car. She was stabbed in the car, not her trailer. I only took $10 that was on her. I didn't take any rings or anything else. I only took $10 that was on her. You know what? Like, he took the bills. The coins, like, they're fucking in the road, right? I mean... Yeah. Yeah. It's close enough to whatever $13, you know? I mean... Also, I was never clear whether she had used the, the tip money to buy the Coke and the gas and the phone call. So, oh. like, I don't know if it had been $13. Holy shit. Yeah. That's amazing, because she says, what, $3 of gas and a Coke? Yeah. There's no fucking way he knows that. Wow. Yeah. I got back in the car, put it in drive, took off on I-4. 
The car started slowing down. It wasn't out of gas. I don't know why it just died on me. I pull it along the road, park in the rain, started stopping. It was close to midnight. No car were on I-4. So that when I start cleaning up most of my prints and if there were blood, I cleaned it up that when I try to pull the radio and speaker out, they didn't tell people about that. Once I cleaned the car, I left the keys and locked the door. That's when I went up I-4. There is an overpath. There was a store and there was a dumpster. There I threw the knife and something I just can't remember what it was. I know that I cleaned the car with it. Jeremy goes on to write that he went back to Kissimmee, breaking into homes, moving back and forth between Osceola and Polk counties. He was eventually arrested for the murder of Donald Moorhead in November of 1988, a year and a half after Michelle Schofield and Joseph LeVere were killed. That's when he first meets his prosecutor, John Aguero. Jeremy continues in his letter. I told John Aguero he knew from the start Leo didn't kill her. Why was her car was on I-4, stuff missing out of the car, and why was my print was in it? Just like the taxi cab driver. What am I to do? I'm been telling the truth. I don't know what else to do. I really want this to go away, but it won't. There's so much shit I need to tell, but I don't know how to put it. I will tell you this. Even though John Aguero died, he knew from the start that I was the one who killed, not Leo. Mr. King, I still would like to know how or who got you to write me. I hope to hear from you soon. Hope you can understand my letter. I ain't good at painting, putting words together. Thank you so much for the stamps. Hope to hear from you soon. There's so much I need to tell. Write soon, Jeremy L. Scott. P.S. Why did the state attorney call me? Told me if I talk with you that I will be in trouble. Tell me what's going on. Holy fuck. Oh, man. Oh, God damn it. God fucking damn it. This is unbelievable. I, I, there's something fucking unbelievably sincere that comes across in that letter. I don't know what to think, man. That, that was really fucking powerful for some reason. Yeah, that one made me want to sob. <laughs> the fact that this guy is still saying this shit and his story makes so much sense and there's just, like, nothing that can be done about it. And, and he's also saying, like, I think I'll be out of here in June. By out of here, he means out of close management, out of solitary. Once he's back in general population... We can schedule our interview with him. God, I want to talk to him. 
I mean, honestly, I don't give a shit about those stamps anymore. Let them fucking, I'm just fucking keeping this guy talking. And if they say, you gave him stamps, so he bought soap, I'll go, fuck you. He can have soap. Yeah, seriously. I don't have any hesitation. Keep sending him stamps. Like, also, fuck that shit that he can only buy soap with stamps. Like, Jesus Christ. I think, fuck it. I'm just, I'm done with these. I'm just done with asking permission to, like, reopen this case. Hey, you there? Yeah, I'm here. What's going on? So I just got off the phone with uh, Paul Walker at um, the Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. And he said that Jeremy is now in general population. Oh, my God. Really? And so, yeah. And so he's eligible for visitors again. But Jesus, finally some good news. I hope this, I just hope this holds, you know. After three years of investigating Leo's case, we're finally going to meet Jeremy Scott. Bone Valley is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Our executive producers are Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis. Kara Kornhaber is our senior producer. Britt Spangler is our sound designer. Roxandra Guidi is our editor. Fact-checking by Maximo Anderson. Our producer and researcher is Kelsey Decker. Our theme song, The One Who's Holding the Stars, is performed by Lee Bob and the Truth. It was written by Leo Schofield and Kevin Herrick in Florida's Hardy Correctional Institution. Bone Valley is written and produced by me, Gilbert King. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. To see fo- Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.